Okay, let's go to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, and verse 10. The word of the Lord says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed how to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. An odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they which are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we've had to be together for so many days now and to look into your word. And we really feel in some ways we've only scratched the surface. It really is a deep, deep mind full of treasures, rich and rare. And we pray that the things that we have seen and learned will continue to influence our lives. The decisions that have been made during this time will be lasting decisions. The fruit will be fruit that endures. We pray also that in the time that is before us in our lives, we will continue to come back to this book and take from it again over and over the treasures and the teachings that are here for us and that we might live like the Philippians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we come tonight to Paul's thank you note. That's what we're going to call this last section, although really the whole epistle, the whole letter to the Philippians is his thank you letter. He wrote it with the intention of telling them thank you, but he really got wound up before he got to the thank you, didn't he? I know some other people a little bit like that. <laughs> but at any rate, this is what he intended to say to them in the beginning. He had received from them a gift. Epaphroditus had come. He found Paul again there in the prison in Rome. The word got out somehow. They knew where he was, and they sent an offering to him to help him. And so Epaphroditus comes, and Paul says, Now, before you leave, I'm going to write this letter, and you can take this back with you. And this is what he took. He took a thank you letter. He took a thank you note. And what a thank you note it is. What a book. I think about this, these little verses here at the end, and I think how much poorer we would all be if all we had of Philippians was from verse 10 to verse 23. Not that they're not good, and I hope to demonstrate that as we go into it tonight. But just think about all the things that we wouldn't have that are here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and what we had last night in chapter 4 of those first verses. All of those teachings. 
All of those exhortations, all of those warnings, all of those examples, it'll all be gone, all be lost. And I want to encourage you to think tonight about the value of letter writing, the value of the ministry of writing a letter to someone and encouraging them or warning them or sharing your faith with them, the value that letters can have. Look at them. Look at this letter. And maybe there's someone in your life that you could write to, someone that's too far away for you to see. Maybe there's someone that you could minister to in some way, that you could give a word of encouragement or warning or testimony to. And if there is, well, you just remember how blessed you were by the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he even wrote it to you. You're reading someone else's mail. Yes, he did. This is to us also. First to the Philippians and then to all of us. So we have his thank you note here. He's going to express his gratitude in verse 10. He does that right away. And then in verses 11 to 16, he's going to begin to give us his testimony. He's been in school and he's learned some things. And he's going to talk to us about what he learned. He's going to give a a report. Or he's going to get a report card, you might say, here. And then when he comes down to verses 17 and 18, he's going to express his contentment again. Because he doesn't want them to think that any of the things that he said, he said them trying to get them to give him something else. He wasn't after that. He was happy and content. He said, I'm full. I have all. Words that you don't hear too often these days. And then in verses 19 and 20, he's going to give them a promise and a prayer. And then he's going to come to his conclusion and his final greetings and his final prayer in verses 20 to 23. Well, that's it. Any questions? I finished before nine. (laughs) Adel says I didn't finish. All right. Back to verse 10. His expression of gratitude is all the more surprising as he talks about the gift. Their care of him. Your care for me has flourished, he says. And when we think about the condition in which the Philippians lived, how they were, what their lives were like. It's all the more surprising that they could do anything to care for anyone else. But this is the way New Testament Christianity is. Come with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Guess where Philippi was? Guess who the first church of the Macedonians was? The church in Philippi. And so he says, the churches of Macedonia, because then there were others. We're going to tell you, he says, we're going to make known to you, declare to you the grace of God that has been bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And how do we see the grace of God in the churches of Macedonia? Boy, i got to be careful. I'm going to get into chapter 8 here and we'll never get back to Philippians 4. I can see it coming. Run, Carl. (laughs) How did God bestow his grace on them? How did he do it? You give them a big, fat, cushiony pillow to lay on and to say, Oh, here I am resting in the Lord. And isn't the grace of God wonderful? We don't have to do anything because we believe the doctrine of grace. Is that your idea of the doctrine of grace? How that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their generosity. For to their power I bear record, and yes, beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. But this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord 
and to us by the will of God. So that we desired Titus as he had begun, so he would finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. He's talking to the Corinthians about a, a gift that they had promised that they, they would send to the poor saints in Jerusalem. To the people in Jerusalem from the book of Acts chapter 4 and on who gave so uh, liberally, so with such generosity, with such disregard for the future, they gave so that others might have the gospel and hear the gospel. They gave in those early days and it said they sold what they had and they gave it to those who had need. And, and in that church in Jerusalem from the beginning there was a, uh, you might say, a vacuum in that sense created. The gospel began to go out and the people began to go out and to preach the gospel in all these places. And there were saints in Jerusalem who were poor. And many of them we can say with confidence that this is what the scripture teaches, that they became that way for the sake of the gospel. And so one of the fruits as the apostles went through the places like Turkey, modern day Turkey and Greece, Macedonia, preaching the gospel, one of the fruits of the conversion of the Gentiles was that these new believers hearing about the great offerings and sacrifices that had been made in Jerusalem and the condition of the saints there, these believers gave and they sent a gift back. Now, that's exactly the opposite of the way things happen in missionary work today. Exactly the opposite. People out in other countries are waiting for someone to send the money out to them. But it's exactly the opposite because in the places from which the gospel goes out, people are living with much more riches than they did in the days of Jerusalem in the times of the scriptures. And money makes many friends, not all of them the best and the truest. But these Macedonian believers, poor believers, look at them. And among them, the Philippian believers. It says that they were in verse 2, they were in a great trial of affliction. It says they had abundant joy and deep poverty. They weren't people who felt sorry for themselves. Their poverty was deep, but to the same extent that their poverty was deep, their joy was abundant. And if you haven't called on, I want to tell you what that means. Money can't buy happiness. Money can buy things, and we know it's the universal passport to everywhere except heaven. But it can't buy happiness. And poor people can be happy. And they can be a lot happier than people who are depending on their riches. Their abundant joy and their deep poverty. And then he says, the riches of their generosity. How can poor people have rich generosity? Well, I want to tell you a story about someone who had that. Stories in the Bible. You can go and read it and check it out for yourself. One day Jesus sat in the temple. He sat by the place where they took the offering and he watched. And they had these big, like, stone jars where they cast in the offering and stone pots you might say huge things and he sat and watched and the scripture says many rich cast in much now you go figure many they were rich and they put in a lot go figure do the math what an offering was that many rich cast in much And then along came a widow who had two mites, which was nothing. It's like saying a nickel. And she put it in. What was that on top of this mountain of money already in that huge stone jar? She put in that little 
coin that she had. And the Lord called the attention of the disciples to it. I don't know if the widow heard what he said when she went out. But I'll tell you what, that woman, whether she knew it or not, has been an example and has given instruction to the followers of the Lord Jesus all through the centuries. And do you know that? You can preach a sermon just by what you do. You can give a lesson to other people just by what you do. And she did, and the Lord called attention to it. He said, that woman put in more than all of them. Now, how do you figure that? Ah, uh-huh. the Lord said, because she cast in, they gave <clears throat> out of their abundance, of their excess. They gave what they could live without. When they gave, there was still plenty in the bank. And it said, she cast in all of her living. She offered in such a way that she had to trust God, not for her retirement years, but starting for breakfast in the morning or for supper that evening. He said she put in more than all of them. And over and over again, when we see in the Scriptures, God teaches us lessons about giving. How many times he points out how the poor people give and not how the rich people give. It's so easy to give and still have a cushion. That woman in Zarephath, she said to the prophet, all I have left is this little oil and... uh, and the flour, and I'm going to make a little cake, and then I'm going to eat it, my son's going to eat it, and then we're going to begin to die of starvation. This is it. This is the last. That's all we have. And the prophet said, make me a cake first. Oh, you arrogant, ill-educated person. What do you mean? Have you no compassion? Well, he wasn't speaking to her as a man. He was speaking to her as God's prophet. And he was inviting her to trust God and to put God first in that way. And she did. She made him one first. And then the Lord blessed her and never ran out. But the the example is there. The poor person and the poor people in Macedonia. He says, they gave, I bear record, they gave, in verse 3, beyond their power. They were willing of themselves. They gave beyond their ability. And not only did they give, but they prayed to us. They implored us. They were pleading with us in verse 4, he says, that we would receive the gift. Boy, that's sure not what you hear today in Protestants and Evangelicals. That's not what you hear on the radio and the television. What you hear is people pleading with people to get their money. And in the New Testament, what you have is people pleading with the apostle to take the money and send it to the people. Please take it. Please let us give. Take this, insisting. A lot of things are turned around in the Bible from the way they are today. Philip is with the Ethiopian eunuch. They're in that chariot. They're riding along and he's he's preaching to him, Jesus, and they come to the water. And what does he say? Philip says, now look here, I've been preaching the gospel to you. And if you're saved, you need to get baptized. And he gave him a little class on baptism. That what happened? And not what happened. That's what happens today. We tell people now, if you're really a believer in the Lord, you need to obey him. The first thing he says to do is to be baptized. Well, that man said to Philip, oh, look, here's water, as they're driving on. He said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, you may. And he declared his faith in the Lord, and they went down to the water and got So said, that's the opposite of what happens today. Today, you have to chase people around the auditorium. You have to take them back there in the room. You have to get the Bible out. You have to say, now you go home and pray about this. Now, look, here's what it says, and here's what it says. And on and on, and everybody's praying for them and wondering, are they going to do it? Are they going to obey the Lord? Are they going to... Give their public testimony, their faith in him or not. 
In the New Testament, they're asking if they can be baptized. The Philippian believers in the other Macedonian churches are asking them, please take the offering, please let us give, take this. And they obviously they felt terrible because they were poor people. They were in deep poverty. They were in affliction, a great trial of affliction. They had difficult circumstances to live in. Do you know why they gave the way they did? Because it says in verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Because that's what God wants. You make sure you got that real clear tonight. What God wants is you. God is not after your wallet. God is not after your bank account. God wants you. And when he's got you, he's got all the rest. And you can't make God happy by giving him a little offering and keeping you for yourself. You can't fool God. You can't pull the wool over his eyes that way. He wants you. You see. All of you. No reservations. He wants you. They gave themselves. He said, not as we hoped. See, they weren't expecting it. They took the apostle by surprise. So they gave themselves to the Lord. Lord, we belong to you. Everything we are, everything we have, we belong to you. We're at your service. We live for you. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do it all to the glory of God. We want to live for you. Just like that hymn we sing, or we sang, or some of us sang. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I know it's here. I was looking for it, but I don't know where it is. If one of you wants to look for it, maybe we'll sing it at the end. Or maybe someone will just stand up and read it at the end. Take my life. It didn't say, to begin with, take this offering. That's not where it began. It begins with a life. Give it to the Lord. And he's talking in this sense about consecration. The consecrating, the dedicating of your life to the Lord. Not just to believe in Him for salvation. Not just to know about Him, but to be committed to following Him and to learning from Him, to living for Him. And your life becomes a sacrifice for Him. They gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us, He says, by the will of God. First to the Lord, and then they said to the apostles who were there, the apostle Paul and those who were with Him, they said, and we're at your service. Oh, and also, please take the offering. But that's not the end of it, because you've got us. Because we gave ourselves to the Lord. That's where it all began. You talk about commitment. This isn't the the modern-day philosophy of the church, like a revolving door, in and out, and that's it. Like a theater that you go to to watch a performance, but you don't have to make any commitment. If you want to get connected to real biblical Christianity, this is it. And the Macedonians are examples They gave themselves to the Lord. And so there comes their offering. And when Paul speaks to them way way back over in the book of Philippians where we're supposed to be. And now we got to get caught up here. (laughs) He says, your care of me has flourished. They're doing it again. They're giving. They're taking care of it. And a few verses down, he says, uh, in verse 15. He said, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my necessity, for my necessity. He said, you have a history of doing this. You're being blessed by God. You are a blessing. 
That's what he's saying to them. He said, I'm so thankful. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because he told them to rejoice in the Lord, didn't he? Back in verse 4. And he practices what he preaches. He says, and I rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying I'm happy that I got some money from you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm happy for your care. It's not the money that made Paul happy. It's the care of the saints. And there's a lot of people running around today naming the name of Jesus. That what makes them happy is money. And that's why they need bodyguards to walk around with them. And take care of them and look out for them. They don't want to get hit up like the bank. One of them said some people lead the sheep and some people feed the sheep. And now I'm going to shear the sheep. He didn't know he was heard when he said it. Paul says, I'm glad for your care. Your care has flourished. He said, you had it before, but you lacked opportunity. He said, I know it. I know, I know why I haven't heard from you in a long time, because where have I been? I was beat up by a mob in Jerusalem. I was carried off by night to Caesarea and Philippi to the prison there for two years. I've been on a ship. I've been in a shipwreck. I was on the island of Malta, and then they took me to Rome. And you, Nobody knew where I was. You didn't have an opportunity. So it's like he's saying, I'm glad that we found one another again. That your care for me has flourished. And he really is glad. And when he says it that way, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's the Greek word megalon, which means, that's where we get our word mega. It means huge joy. I had mega joy when I heard from you. And I knew we were back in communication again. That means that day that Epaphroditus walked in and found where the Apostle Paul was and he walked in and he said, Paul. And Paul looked and there was Epaphroditus. It means his heart just leapt for joy. At that moment, he was so happy. He was overcome with joy to see one of the Macedonian, one of the Philippian believers. And so now he gives them his testimony. Verses 11 to 16, he says, not that I speak with in respect of want, not that I, I wanted any. I'm not saying this to you because I want something. And this is so important. He said it, and I say it every time I come to a passage like this, it needs to be clarified. Paul wasn't speaking because of any need, and neither am I. You would make a huge mistake if you thought that somehow I, I was uh, covering this passage hoping to get something for it. You would make a huge mistake, the same mistake that could have been made in the days when Paul wrote this. Not that I speak with respect of want. He said, it's not because of want. There's nothing in me motivating me. I'm not looking for anything out of this, he says. And he had to say it to the Corinthians. Come with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He he didn't want to be misunderstood, and neither do I. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's speaking to the Corinthians about the, the question of their finances and offerings and fellowship in that way. And uh, he says down in verse 15, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. Now, I'm not writing to you about this subject so that you'll send me something. That's what he said. I'm not preaching to you. I'm not teaching to you about this in order to get something. This is not a hint. This is not a subliminal message. This is not a manipulation. This is not something with, a, with any other goal in mind except that we learn to do what God says in his word for his glory. See, And if a poor congregation 
of Macedonians in great affliction and trial and deep poverty could do that. But you just have to wonder what Europeans and North Americans could do if they really took this seriously. He says, I don't say it because of need, but I have learned, he says. I have learned. Did you get that? He didn't know everything when he got saved, and he didn't know everything when he became an apostle. I have learned, the apostle Paul could say. And I read that and I say, gulp. Am I learning? And I ask you, are you learning? Could you say, I have learned? And what have you learned? Because learning isn't the same thing as hearing. Learning isn't the same thing as knowing. He says here, I have learned to be. He's not talking about memorizing information. He's talking about how to live. I have learned to be content, he says. In whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. The Apostle Paul went to school. He was enrolled in the school of Christian experience. And as we move through our Christian lives, we want to be able to say the same thing. Can you say that? We've been through the whole book of Philippians now. And you should be able to take something from every... When we did the men's seminar, we did this. We put a thing at the, at the end of every set of notes for every passage. My personal application and my prayer request. And every time you read and study the Word of God and listen to the teaching of the Word of God, you ought to be able to say at the end, I have learned and fill in the blank. This is what, this is what I'm taking away from me. I have learned. And as you review your life year by year, And don't wait for the year to go by. Week by week. How am I growing this week? What have I learned this week? Because you don't want to be that. What was it, men, that we studied on Saturday? I waited for somebody to stand up and show us what it was, but nobody did. But nobody did. You show them. (laughs) The frozen Christian. Growing in every way except spiritually, financially, in career, in education, achieving how many goals we set for ourselves. But what about spiritually? The most important. Because the spiritual is the only thing you can take with you to eternity. You came into this world naked and you're going out that way. You came in with your fists clenched, but when you go out, your hands are going to be open. They're not going to be anything in them. Even Alexander the Great, when he was buried, he said, bury me with my hands open that everyone might see that I went out, I left this world empty-handed. The man who wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. When he left, he had nothing. What are you learning? What have you learned? Name one thing, not to me. Let your heart respond to the Lord. Name one thing that you learned in which your life has changed because you studied the book of Philippians. And if you can't do it, I feel sorry for you. I have learned, says Paul. I have learned, and I say when I read that, Lord, teach me. I want to learn every day of my life. Paul had been through some awful, terrifying experiences. He'd been through some difficult times, and we read the scriptures that he wrote, and we see where he was abandoned. In some places, he said, they all abandoned me. They all left me. He knew what it was like to walk alone. He knew what it was like to suffer on more than one occasion. Great trials and tribulations, the like of which most of us have never even had and never even heard of. He said, I'm learning. I want to learn as I go through the Christian life. And I hope you do too. I hope you're not just a meeting attender. I hope you're a learner. And you come with your mind open, 
with your heart open and desiring. Teach me, Lord, from your word. This is not having a blank mind just to receive anything. We're not talking about that. We're talking about coming with hunger and thirst for righteousness. Coming to learn from the Lord and say, Lord, I want to imitate you. I want to follow you. And I want to follow those who follow you. Teach me. Touch anything in my life. Anything. And some people would say anything except, you know, there was a man who wrote a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he described the, his life as a house with different rooms in it. And he invited the Lord in and he goes through. It's a wonderful little booklet. It's just a little bitty thing. You really should get that and have it. In fact, we can find it. I'll give one to everybody in the congregation. Every family would be wonderful to have. Wonderful book. And, and Where? That's right. Thank you. Robert Munger. He said, then there was this closet that I didn't want to open and let him have. And the book goes on, and the booklet. And in the end, he finally just takes the key and, uh, to the house, and he hands it to the Lord, and he says, it's your house, Lord. All the rooms, it's all yours, you see. You got a room? You got a room that he can't get into? You say you're following Jesus, but you got one little teeny tiny key that you're keeping for yourself. You know, one of these little bitty keys like that. Now, that goes to a lock that goes on my luggage. Don't worry. You won't come look at my luggage? I ain't got anything to hide. But just one little key. As long as you have that, you're in control. You're in control and you're telling him where he can go and what he can touch in your life and what he can't. As long as you got that, even one little thing, you're the boss and you're in control. So when you trust the Lord, you say, there it is, Lord. And here's all my other keys or here's all my other rooms. Take the whole thing. It's yours. Let me live in there with you. It's all yours. You give it all to him. Don't try to give Jesus conditions. Let him have it all. He says, I learn. I learn. Whatever state I am in, to be content, not complaining. You know, I was thinking about that this afternoon, and I thought about all the different situations that the Apostle Paul had to live in, all the times that he was beaten, all the times that he was shipwrecked, and all the times that he couldn't sleep, and he was hungry, and he didn't have things that he needed, and people abandoned him, and the tension that he felt from being on trial and being accused, all of these things that happened to him. He's a content Christian. And I said, Lord, forgive me for complaining. If he could be content in any state, oh, it's easy to sing when the sun is shining and the birds are singing and everything's going the way we think it should. Who isn't content then? But Paul says, I have learned in whatever condition he lived above his circumstances, in whatever state I am in, to be content. He wasn't a complaining Christian. A content Christian. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will carry nothing out. And having food and covering, let us with this be content. How many people here tonight have more than food and covering? We have nothing to complain about. We have nothing. And a lot of people, and I can say this from experience, in the world that I travel to and minister, the people I minister among out on the mission field, a lot of people have incredibly less than we do. And you know what? They're happier than a lot of people that call themselves Christians in North America and in Europe. Because things don't make you happy. 
circumstances don't give you true joy. Where you get that is from the Lord. And if you've got Him, you've got all you need. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, Oh, Lord, why didn't you take better care of me? Look at it when he comes, look at it, what we're coming to down here in verse, um, night, uh, verse 20. When he comes to the end of this whole section, he says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he's been talking about all of this, uh, being abased and suffering need and being hungry and not having how he learned to be content. When he gets to heaven, he's not going to say, Boy, Lord, I don't know why you let me. Did you realize what was happening to me? (laughs) Praise the Lord, he says. To God be glory. God never made a mistake with Paul's life. But all that has to happen, all we have to do is break a fingernail and we think God made a mistake with us. We're pitifully frail. Greenhouse Christianity. They can't take the circumstances. Can't live and be content. I feel sorry for it when I read about this. I learned to be content. There's something for you. Say, Lord, I want to learn to be content in whatever condition I'm in. Because when you're content, when you have godliness with contentment, you're not greedy for more gain. And when he talks about that over in 1 Timothy, when he speaks to Timothy on that subject in chapter 6 where we were reading, he warns them about that. He says... In chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and covering, let us be there with content. But they that want to be rich, they that will be rich. That's what their desire is. Their goal, their aim. Fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil. It's while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Oh, what a blessing to be content, to be satisfied. And you know what it does? It takes you out of this mad rat race in the world around us where everybody's trying to make their first million and everybody's got all these goals set for themselves like that and you can just say, Lord, I'm happy. To be able to have a covering, a place to live, and clothing, and food to eat. I'm happy. I'm not living for all those other things. I'm content. He says, I know, again in verse 12, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. How do you think he knows that? This is his report card. He got an A. He learned. You can't know how to be abased and how to abound. Unless you go through the circumstances. And most people who have been through those will tell you that the far greater temptation and difficulty for the Christian in his, in his life is the riches, the abounding, the having an abundance. Having more than you need, that's a worse temptation than not having enough. Because when we get more than we need, then our lives, if we don't use it right for the Lord, if we start socking it away... For the rainy day, then the Lord has to send the rainy day. As one man said, those who plan for the rainy day, God makes sure they get it. He said, woe to those who value the rainy day more than the present spiritual necessities. 
and the rainy day more than those who are in need. And Ronald Sider wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and they almost called him a cultist for writing that book. But he has some things that, to say in that book that really make you stop and think where our priorities are. Paul says, I know, I know. There were times, and this is one of them, when he says, I have all and abound. I don't need anything else. And you know what? I can say that. Don't think about as, a re, as an application of this message giving me anything because I have all and abound. Praise the Lord. His care never fails. And I told you about that the other night. He's a wonderful master. A wonderful God. And those who serve him don't need to go begging and hinting and suggesting and coveting what other people have. Now, I've got the Lord. He says, I know. I know how to be abased because he's been there. He says, I know how to abound. I know how to have an abundance. How did he know all of this? Did he learn it? Did he read a book? He went to the local Christian bookstore and there on the shelf along with how to feel good about yourself and help God, the devil wants me fat and all these other books they come out with. There was one in there that said how to be abased and how to abound. Oh, I want to read that. We're great. Christians are great for how-to books. You know, Self-help. So we start reading that and how to be abased and how to abound. How to abound. Well, you got to invest in this market and that market and you got to have this and that. When Paul abounded, it wasn't because he had any investments. The only investments Paul had was he invested his life and the, and the word of the Lord in other people. Those were his investments. That was his treasure in heaven. Now, I know, this, is what it, this is what it's talking about. Don't anybody here think that I'm, I'm taking aim with my cruise missile at somebody's life or job or work? But I'm just showing you what the scripture has to say. And then you have to go and sort it out and say, am I following Am I an imitator of Paul? Am I following him? Or am I just knowing things about him? He didn't read this in a book. This is the school of experience. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes Beyond measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often. In hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. Besides those things which are without or on the outside, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Did you notice what he says? He talks about sleepless nights. Watching, that means You pass through the watches of the night with your eyes wide open. You can't sleep. And he was up late in Philippi in the jail, wasn't he? At midnight, praying and singing hymns. He talked about hunger. Even though he was an apostle and a servant of the Lord, there were times when he didn't have enough to eat. But he never told people about it when it happened. He never tried to get anything from them. He trusted the Lord. He followed 
our Lord and Savior who went 40 days and nights without eating one time. Our Lord and Savior who was able to say, the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not have where to lay his head. He was cold. He didn't have a blanket. He didn't have warm clothing. Because the fact that we belong to the Lord and have faith in the Lord doesn't mean we're going to have, we don't believe this prosperity gospel baloney that's being preached in Western Christianity, which is as false as a $3 bill. Paul had all of these things because he followed Christ. And sometimes God tests us. And sometimes God allows things to happen, not as a punishment, but simply to teach us. How are we going to learn if we never go through the circumstances? How will we know He is faithful? How will we know He is sufficient? How will we be able to say, I rested in the Lord and I called upon Him and He sustained me? How will we be able to say He's with me in difficulty and trial if we never have any? He learned. He's in school. And the very thought of being in a school like Paul's where we have to learn to be abased and to be hungry and to suffer need, well... That just frightens the life out of some people. But the best thing to do is just to turn your life over to the Lord, like the Philippian believers did, and just say, Lord, I'm yours. You lead me in the path that I should go in. The Lord promised, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's never going to leave you. You're never going to be abandoned. People might abandon you. And if you live long enough in your Christian life, you'll learn about that experience. But the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. He is a faithful friend. You didn't buy his friendship to start with. You didn't earn his friendship to start with. And you can't lose it either. He's not that kind of friend. And sometimes we have to give up friendships to be faithful to the Lord. There are relationships and friendships sometimes that have to be abandoned for the sake of the Lord. But I'll tell you what. The Lord is a better friend to me than anyone I ever gave up. The Lord is a better friend to me than any friendship I ever lost. And look what a family he's given me. Look what a family. Look at this great big family the Lord has given me. And you know all over the world it's that way. You get off a plane or a ship or a bus somewhere and there they are standing there waiting for you. And they come up to you and they say, brother, you got a great big family all over the world. People that belong to the Lord. Paul knew how to be abased. And he knew how to abound. And you know what? He wrote this from prison. He didn't write this from some theological seminary. He wrote this from prison. He was chained and waiting to be tried in Rome. And so with these words that he says to them here have weight. He's the man that sang in jail at Philippi at midnight. Is his joy circumstantial? What an example. And he says, follow me. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now, let's think about this verse, this famous verse. This verse that has been quoted by Norman Vincent Peale and apostates like Robert Schuller and, and, and all kinds of other people. Possibility thinking. I can do all things through Christ. That means if I want to take a running leap and fly over Adel and everybody and go around the room and come back. I want to walk over there and pick up one of those musical instruments. Me with my, whew, worse than ignorance. 
of the musical score. I wouldn't even know how to pick it up the right way. Oh, but I can play that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or like one girl said to us who came from a, a certain uh, kind of church that I'm not going to mention and uh, where they emphasize uh, feelings in this all the time. And she, and we were showing a gospel film in a town. We rented a, a little the theater that they had there and we were showing this gospel film to everybody who would come in the town. And she came from the next town over where they had this little uh, church. And she came and walked in. And the rule they had in this town, it was owned by the, like the Chamber of Commerce or the, the Mayor's Council or something. Just a little bitty thing about as big as this section right here. And the rule they had was no food or drinks in there because they had upholstered it real nice. And they didn't sell popcorn and all that. And she came walking in with a big uh, what we call a bocadillo, it's like a submarine sandwich, and chips and drink and all this, and somebody stopped her at the door. And she said, oh, no, it's okay, brother. It doesn't, no, but the town has a rule. She says, she's calling everybody, brother. It's okay, brother. You know, the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> Walk crumbs and chips going everywhere. See, people misinterpret this verse. They think it means they can do whatever they want to or they can do anything they dream about. I want to put the verse in context for you. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I am instructed in everywhere and all things. Paul was in school all the time and everywhere. He says, I have learned to be full and to be hungry. He says, I have learned to abound And to suffer need. And when he says all things, he's talking as one Bible commentator well put it. He said, what he means there is I can do all these things that I'm talking to you about. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that doesn't keep that verse from being an application to us that we can do as believers all that the Lord wants us to do through his strength. That certainly is true. But I want you to understand, that's a secondary application. That's not the principal thought here. The principal thought in verse 13 is it has to fit in the context of the passage. And he's talking to them about what he's been learning. He's been in school. He's been being educated. Even the apostle had to learn. And the Lord taught him how to bound. He gave him moments and times when he had more than he needed. And he taught him how to be abased. Because you have to learn how to abound as a Christian. And what do you do with it when it abounds? Well, you don't do like that man in the New Testament in the parables the Lord told. He went and tore down all his barns and built bigger barns. And he said, oh, soul, take your rest you have for many years. And the Lord came to him that very night and said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will all those things be? That's not how to abound. The Lord had to teach Paul how to abound as a Christian. And he taught Paul how to abound and how to be abased. And he says, I can do all that through Christ. The Lord gives me strength to do the right thing with it when it abounds. And the Lord gives me strength and is with me and sustains me when I'm abased, when I'm suffering need. The Lord gives me strength. He enables me to make it through any of those circumstances that come my way in life. I can do all these things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need the strength of the Lord. We can't do anything by ourselves. John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And you know what? That's all we're ever going to be. Give it up. You ain't never going to be nothing else but a branch. And me either. (laughs) 
That's all we are. Branches. He's divine. Abide in me, he says. Want to bear fruit? Abide in me. Want to bring forth much fruit, more fruit, much fruit? Want to show that you're my disciple? Abide in me. He gives us life. He gives us strength. And when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, he means I'm attached to the vine. I get all of my strength from him. But he's talking particularly here about the lessons that we have to learn about material things in life. When we abound, when we have more than we need, more than food and covering with which we should be content. When we have more than that, what do we do? Do we let the Lord teach us what to do with it? Or do we let the, in, the people in investment and marketing teach us what to do with it? Do we let the people who believe in the rainy day teach us what to do with it? What did Paul say? He said, I have learned. And who did he learn from? Who was his financial counselor? Well, you see, once upon a time, back in Matthew 6, there was this person who said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know I'm teasing you when I say once upon a time. We know one another well enough to let me tease you and use irony sometimes, don't we? He said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. He said, put them in heaven. He didn't say give them to the minister, give them to the pastor. He said, put them in heaven. He didn't say, don't lay up treasures on earth, but it's okay if you're a preacher. To be driving a, some of the cars some of these fellows drive and the bodyguards they have with them and the castles they live in and the private jets that they fly in. And I look at all of that and I say, yes, sir, humble servants of Christ, just like in the days of the book of Acts. With all of my sarcasm, you have my full disdain, I could say to them. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes... He became poor. That you through his poverty might be made rich. And when he said that rich, he wasn't talking about the bank account. One brother preaching that verse in one place or teaching it to an adult Sunday school class. They were going through 2 Corinthians and they got to that verse and and he said to them, he said, now, this verse says the Lord, uh, we know the grace of the Lord that he, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes that we could be made rich. Through his poverty, he said, now, if the Lord, being rich, made himself poor for the benefit of others, and we're his disciples and followers, what should we do? And he said, everyone just sat there and looked at him. It was a, a discussion class, you know, where questions and answers and discussions. He said, no one said anything. So he thought, well, maybe they didn't understand. He said, no. So the passage says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is grace at work. And the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now, if the Lord did that, and we're his disciples, how should we live? And everyone just sat there again. No one said anything. And, he, and I said, what did you do then? He said, I just gave it up. He said, I refused to tell them. It was so obvious. He said, I, he said, I figured none of them wanted to say it. Because it would have been self-condemning to say that they knew the answer when they knew they weren't living it. No one said anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My strength is not the bank. My strength is Christ. 
He says in verse 14, a word of commendation. Nevertheless, he says, you have done well in that you communicated with me. You shared with me in my affliction. Because he, he had affliction. He was suffering need. And my distress, some versions say. He said, you shared with me. You shared in my distress. You did well. You did well. Can't say that to everybody. Some people do well. And when they get to heaven, the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And other people, they just have to say, well, you could have, but you didn't. Isn't it nice to hear the Apostle Paul say to those poor Macedonian, remember 2 Corinthians 8, those poor Macedonian believers to say, you did well. You shared in my distress. It's a proof of love. In 1 John 3, 17 and 18, we're told that if you see your brother in need and, sh- and close your heart of affections, it's just like you close the door. You shut a door. You close up your affections. So you see that need. You know about it. But you close your heart of affections. He said, how does the love of God dwell in you? Now, there's a question that needs meditating on. But he doesn't have to say that to them. He says, you did well. You did well. And you can be sure that the Lord thought the same. Then he says to them, For even in Thessalonica, in verses 15 and 16, when I was in Macedonia, and even when I went to Thessalonica, you shared with me. He calls it the beginning of the gospel in verse 15. What does he mean by that? He's reminiscing now. The beginning of the gospel. You have different places in the scripture where it says the beginning. You have the beginning in Genesis. You have the beginning in John. Well, here's a different kind of beginning here. The beginning of the gospel. What does he mean? When the gospel first came to Europe and when the gospel began to be preached in Macedonia, I came to Philippi. That was the beginning of the gospel in your part of the world, he says. In the beginning of the gospel. And when he left there, he went along preaching in Thessalonica and other places. He said, no church communicated with me concerning giving and need. You were the only ones. You were the only ones, but he remembers their loving care. He's not saying this to criticize any other particular church or group. He's just remembering the special affection they had for him. No church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving except you. You're the only one. And I would say, as I look at this, when we think about that sort of thing in our Christian life, don't assume that others are doing it. If they had made the assumption, well, he got all the way here from, from Jerusalem. Somebody must be taking care of him. They just assumed that somehow it's taken care of. The Philippians didn't assume anything. They were concerned and they expressed their concern. They gave themselves to the Lord. And see, when you do that, then the Lord is able to direct you. I know this person came to me one time and they said, before we left to go to Spain, they said, we'd like to make a a commitment to you to, to send you support so much a month. I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't accept it. I appreciate the offer, but I can't accept it. And I don't let anybody make any commitments with me about anything. I trust the Lord. I never know from month to month, and I don't want to know. Who, where, how much, I never know. I just trust the Lord. I said, if you want to make a commitment, you make a commitment to the Lord concerning anything in his work. But, but don't try to make any, any commitments or promises to me because that's not the way it works. You be in contact with the Lord. Well, that's sure not what you hear in a lot of places today where they want you to sign up. And one, one man back in Texas said, 
Now they, they were building a big new church. And he said, now the Lord gave me a revelation last night. And he said, I was dreaming and I had this revelation from the Lord. And the Lord said to me, and he called his own name and he said, there are five people in your congregation who can give $5,000 or more for the building of this building. And there are 10 people in your congregation who can give $1,000 or more. And there are 25 people who can give $500. I don't know if he got that from a vision or if he got it from a pencil and a piece of paper. He said it was a vision. Then he said to all the people, Now, I don't know who you are. Say, I'm not asking you to give anything. Then he tried to wash his hands like Pontius Pilate. I don't know who you are, he said, but the Lord does. And he hung that sword of Damocles over them. The Lord knows. What's he doing? He's twisting their arms. He's pressing and he's working on them to get that money out of them. Sign up how much you'll give. Make a commitment. How about just do what the Macedonians did in 2 Corinthians 8? That has always, for true spiritually minded Christians, been enough. Just give yourself to the Lord and be sensitive to the Lord and let Him lead in your life. That's the way to do it. We don't want to make an automated and mechanized version of Christianity. So, he's reminiscing and he's thanking them for their care. And then he has to give them this disclaimer. And we come to the part about his contentment here in verses 17 and 18. This disclaimer, he says, not that I desire a gift. See, I'm not talking about this. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. Now, I talked about being abased and and suffering need and my distress. I, I, I don't want you to worry. I didn't say that so you'd give me something. Not that I desire a gift. He wasn't looking at them and wanting what they had. That's not what it was about. He said, this isn't about me getting something from you. This is about fruit in your account. You know you got an account? You got a savings book? You got an account? In heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Check the balance lately? Made a deposit lately? They tell the story about the man. It's just a humorous story about the man who went to heaven. And, and he got there and they checked his name at the gate. And they said, yes, Mr. Smith, uh, come right in. We'll take you right to your mansion, he thought. All those songs. We used to sing that song. You know, I got a mansion over the hilltop. I can. They took him down the streets of gold. Wow, what mansions he saw. They were better than any house in Danville. He was looking around at all those houses. And he said, boy, this is great. Huge gardens and left wing and right wing and upstairs and downstairs and swimming pool and golf course and all. He just, oh man, he could hardly wait. And they kept walking and walking pretty soon. They crossed kind of a main intersection. They kept going. And the next neighborhood was kind of a little more modest, let's say. And, and he said, oh, but these aren't bad, you know. This, this, I kind of wish I had that. But this isn't bad. And look, at these are nice, you know. And they kept walking and they passed another intersection. And they got to another neighborhood. It was kind of like, well, uh, it's better than being out in the cold. And they get out there to the very edge of heaven. There's this little lot out there, this little empty lot with weeds on it. And there's a little shack there and a screen door. The screen's torn and one hinge is off. And uh, the man says, well, here you are. I mean, the angel says to him, here you are. And he says, what do you mean here I am? What kind of a joke is this? This can't be mine. There must be some mistake. I'm Mr. Smith. Look at my name on the list again. He says, yeah, let's see, Mr. Smith. This is your house. This is it. He said, you can't. What about it? I got a mansion over the hilltop. The angel said, hey. It's one thing to sing and it's another thing to save. He said, don't complain to me. We did the best we could with what you sent ahead. (laughs) 
So the apostle doesn't want him to get to heaven empty-handed. He wants him to get to heaven with fruit. And there's the fruit of the Spirit. That's our character. And then there's this kind of fruit. And there are others. But I don't have any time to go into that. Somebody else have to do that, Abel. Like a military volunteer. Fruit. One of the fruits, the fruit of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, the sacrifice of praise. There, I gave you another one. Write it down. But this is fruit, what we offer to the Lord of our material, of the things that we have, the things that can be used to further his work. Fruit. I desire that fruit abound, not that you might have a little bit in your account, but that it might abound, that you have a big, bulging savings book in heaven. But I'll tell you, a lot of people don't do any checking on their heavenly account. Paul says, but as for me, in verse 18, I have all in abound. There they are, three phrases you never hear, hardly ever, among professing evangelicals. I have all. These televangelists don't say that. And the radio preachers, every 30 seconds, they're telling you where to send the offering. They don't say that. You never hear them say, I have enough. Don't send any money. I have all. I abound. He's saying, I have everything I need, and I abound. I have more than I need, he says. And I'm full. I'm not hungry. I'm full. I got everything I need. You know what? I can say the same thing. I have everything I need. Praise the Lord. Paul says, I'm, I'm not saying this. I want you to know. I'm, ta- this, I'm talking about you learning and you investing in heaven and doing what the Lord says and stop laying up treasures on earth. It's all going to be burned up, the earth and the works that are in it. And a lot of people are going to leave all their treasure down here. And you know what? You leave everything when you die anyway. When people die and they say, how much do you leave behind? What's the answer? Everything. He left it all. You can't take it with you. There's no U-Haul trailers behind the hearse. It doesn't go. Better to send it to heaven ahead of time. And he says, I have all I need. I received it, he says. The offering, the things which you sent from Epaphroditus, I have it. And look what he calls their offering here. He says three things about it. A sweet-smelling aroma. Their offering was pleasant. He's talking about those offerings that had that incense and those burnt offerings that went up to God, that God told the people, this is a sweet smelling aroma that God was pleased by the sacrifice that was being made. It's pleasing to God. It's the language of the Old Testament sacrifices. And then he says, an acceptable sacrifice. And sacrifices cost us something. When you give out of your abundance and left over and what doesn't cost you anything and what you can live without and do without, that's not a sacrifice. And when I say you, I'm including me. Sacrifice is what the widow did. Sacrifice is what the Macedonian believers did in 2 Corinthians 8. And and Paul doesn't say, now you shouldn't have done that. He says, that was an acceptable sacrifice. And he says, and it was well-pleasing to God. Isn't that wonderful? Not just he says to the apostle telling you well done, but he says, and God's going to tell you well done. God is pleased with such sacrifices. And he says, and that's not all. And he comes to his promise and prayer. God saw this. He was pleased by it. But I'll tell you one thing. He says to them in verse 19, you can't outgive God. You give to him with a spoon and he gives back to you with a shovel. He takes care of you. He says, my God shall supply all your need now 
the operative word there is the word need. This is not name it, claim it stuff. This is not everything I want, everything I dream about, everything when I look through the catalogs and in the show windows and and in the world around me I covet or desire, every thought, every fleeting desire. That, it's not saying that. God will give me everything I need. And thank God that he doesn't give us everything we want. Have you ever thought seriously about what a miserable life you would have if God gave you everything you wanted? Sometimes you, something passes through your mind or your thoughts or you get obsessed with something and you want it. And then later on you say, boy, that was stupid. What was I thinking? And a lot of people do that. You know, in the commerce world, they talk about impulse buying. And they even make laws to try to protect people, give them rights. And if they impulse buy, then they can back out of it within 72 hours or something like that. I don't know what it is. So we don't have to worry about that with the Lord. He's going to give us what we need. Everything that we need. God will supply everything that you need. He said that to the poor Macedonian believers who gave. And that way we saw in 2 Corinthians 8. But some people don't need this. They don't need for God to supply all of their need. Because they got it all planned. All their investments and portfolios and funds and IRAs and 401s and 802s. And I don't even know what all those numbers mean. So how's my investment portfolio going? Well, it's all up there where it can't be touched. And if God fails me, I'm sunk. But he ain't going to fail me. He ain't going to fail me. It's like that in that... um, what do they call that? Gattaca or something like that. Where the, the boys, uh, the two the brothers swam out into the surf and they had this contest. And, and uh, when they were young and then later on when they were older. And the one, the one who had the heart condition swam beyond. They swam until you couldn't swim anymore. And the one who turned back first lost. And uh, so the guy that had the weak heart or whatever, and he he won at the end. He swam and swam at night in the surf, and then he, his brother, who was stronger, turned around and went back, and he said, how did you do it? He said to his brother when they were back on the shore, and he said, I didn't save anything for the return trip. Something to think about. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory, and that's more than the biggest bank on earth. His riches in glory, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. God who is rich in mercy, God who is rich in love, and God who knows how to give and take care. You have a heavenly Father who knows what things you have need of before you ask. And that God, all-powerful and all-knowing, who loves you and cares for you, can supply all of your need. And that's why he says, like we already talked about, glory to God. To him be glory forever. He, nobody's going to get to heaven and say, yeah, I know it said that, Lord, but you didn't take care of me and you didn't supply all my need. No one will ever accuse God of not supplying what they need. He promises. And the idea is, as a word of encouragement to those Philippian believers who had put him first. And if that will encourage us, then let it encourage us. But if it challenges us to live like they did and to need for God to supply all of our needs, to put our trust and our hope and our confidence in Him and not in our scheming and planning down here. Well, then so be it. He comes to the conclusion. 
Now unto God and our Father be glory for and ever and ever. Amen. He says, and with that, he turns to the salutations, to the final greetings. Greet the saints in Christ. Every saint in Christ Jesus, he says. Greet him. Not talking about the dead. Not talking about the saints, you know, like in the Catholic churches where they have them on the walls and the statues in the plazas and they wear them around their neck. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the living saints, the true saints. And then he calls them the brethren because those are names that the Lord has given to us. We're saints. He says, you are one, now live like one. And you're a brother, a sister. Now live and treat those other people like your brothers and sisters. And he says, the the saints, greet the saints. And the brethren who are with me greet you, he says. Paul had people with him all the time. He always had them with him, learning from him, uh, giving him companionship, fellowship, co-laboring. Those women who labored with me, he said, in the gospel. Timothy, like a son with a father, he has labored with me, served with me in the gospel. He always had people working with him. And that's the way we ought to be. Who are you with? You a lone ranger? You keep to yourself? Are you a team player, a team worker? Working and learning together about the Lord. He says, they're with me. All the saints greet you, he says in verse 22. There were already believers in Rome, but I think Paul smiled when he wrote this. He said, especially those who are of Caesar's household. I don't know, maybe he was feeling a little bit of sanctified mischief when he said that. Like, <laughs> we got in. We got in. Into Caesar's household, all those, those guards had to be chained to him. And the servants that came and went. And the, and the Christians who were servants in people's homes. And the gospel is sneaking in and slipping in and infiltrating. He says, look, in Caesar's household, there were believers those who were in Caesar's household. But he didn't reach them by saying, I think Christians need to be senators and emperors because we need to have a testimony. We need to have rich and powerful Christians to have a testimony to rich and powerful people. That ain't who reached them. It was a poor man who knew how to suffer, how to be abased, how to, how to, to be deprived. How to live in prison. How to be afflicted. A man who was publicly beaten. A man who was thrown into jail. A man who was shipwrecked. Those people. Those kind of people reached inside Caesar's household. You don't have to be rich to reach the rich. And you don't have to be in power politics to reach the people in politics. The gospel can get in anywhere. And that's what happened. I think Paul smiled when he wrote this. He couldn't go anywhere without preaching the gospel. You put him in jail, the jailer gets saved. You, see, you send him to Rome and people in Caesar's household get saved. He preached the gospel in season and out of season. And when are we going to preach it? And then he gives them his farewell. Now I want you to think with me about these last words. Because this is not like saying, you say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's his farewell prayer. That's not like saying, so... Have a nice day. That's not what that is. That's not just a polite way to end a letter. He's taught them a lot of things in this letter. And this is his prayer. That they will have grace. That means unmerited favor and help from God. 
to do all of the things and to live all of the way that he's been teaching them in this letter. He teaches them how to live. He warns them what to do and what not to do. And then at the end he says, now the Lord's grace be with you. That's like saying, and may God help you to live all of this that we've talked about in this letter. That's what he's saying to him. Let the Lord be with you and help you to rejoice, to stand fast, to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we had in chapter 1. May you have grace from God, divine help and favor to do that. Let the mind of Christ be in you. God give you grace to let the mind of Christ be in you. May you have help from God, and you will have. If you don't do it, it won't be because God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Grace to have the mind of Christ. Grace to watch out for evil workers. Beware of dogs. Beware, he says, of evil workers, of the mutilators. Those people who peddle false doctrines and false teachers, beware. May God give you grace even for that. Be careful who you listen to and follow. Grace to count all loss, all rubbish, all to be done and to be satisfied to know Christ, to follow Him and to be like Him. May God give us grace to do that. Like Paul. To follow Paul's example. Grace to be an imitator of the apostles and the early Christians and not to settle for a cheap, watered-down imitation 21st century version of Christianity, but to be true biblical followers of the Lord and those who followed Him. And it doesn't matter what sacrifice we have to make or what it costs us to be followers. God give us grace to behave like citizens of heaven and remind us to hope in the coming of our Lord who's going to change our bodies and make them like His glorious body. God help us to think about that every day where we're going. And to pray and not to worry and to trust God and to work on our heavenly account and to be ready to go to be with Him. We need God's grace just like the Philippians did. And you know what? I'm happy to tell you tonight, we have it. We have it. We have God's grace. But this is the question. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Can you say that tonight to the Lord? Are you willing to say that in the words of the hymn writer? I'm inviting you to do that with me now, to be able to say to the Lord, to bow your head right now and be able to say, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Could you do that? Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take me, Lord, all of me. I'm yours. I don't want to just give you something. I want you to take me. I dedicate myself to you. To live for you. To trust in you. To follow you. Take me, Lord. And help me to live for you. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity. We've had to look into this book together. We thank you for the example that the Apostle Paul himself gives us. We thank you for the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ who came down, who humbled himself and was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. We thank you for the examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Examples that seem nearer to us and yet even those seem to be on so much higher a level than what we are accustomed to seeing and living. We believe that you brought us to this epistle. 
And you've brought us here to hear it and to study it together. And we believe that you're speaking to our lives, that you're here tonight. And you want us to make a personal commitment to you. And we believe this is the moment of decision. And we ask you to take our lives. And I pray for those in our midst who need to say that tonight more than anyone else. Lord, take me. For the first time in their life, they need to say, I'm giving you me, Lord. I'm not just going to believe things about you. Historical information. I'm yours. May tonight be that night. In Jesus' name, amen.